Well, uh, let's uh, get going again here. Uh, last week, we were, of course, looking at the biblical foundation for spiritual authority and started to talk a little bit about how the two secular and spiritual authority actually relate and some of the limits of each. Today, we're going to turn to something we don't very often get to look at just because, well, normally we go right to the Bible, which is a good thing. But we, as Lutherans, do have this whole other set of documents called the Lutheran Confessions, right? They're all in this handy-dandy small little book called the Book of Concord. By small little book, I mean probably about as thick as the Bible. <laughs> by the way, how many of you have, uh, do you have a copy of the Book of Concord by chance in your houses? Fair enough, fair enough. In different places where, you know, they did Bible study things and, and were using... Book of Concord, you know that. Sure. You know that was that. That was the, the the main focus was you know going going through that you know. Right. Parts of what's in there. Sure. Sure. Well, and I, it's it's useful and important to do for some kinds of things, especially something like this for a few reasons. One of the big reasons we're Lutherans. Uh, we do assume that there's some good stuff in there. In fact, the constitution of our congregation, very first part says, we adhere both to the scriptures as the inspired word of God and to the Lutheran confessions. So what we teach in this church has to line up not just with what we think the Bible says, but also how it's interpreted by the Book of Concord. Because we believe the Book of Concord is an accurate interpretation of the things that it talks about for the Bible. It's not to say it's on the same plane, it's to say it gets the Bible right. And so for a lot of things where it talks, it's useful to go to that to understand better what the Bible says. Especially about this, because what we're going to find as we go through this today is the Book of Concord actually talks a fair bit about some very important things with the relationship to church and state that would be helpful for us to remember as we uh, navigate our own times. Now, it's worth saying right away, the Book of Concord was written in a very different political situation than our own. We, of course, live in America. We have the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the very First Amendment guarantees what? Freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Right. Freedom of several things, religion being one of the big ones. Uh, specifically, it says something like, I'll have to dig up the Constitution to uh, say, but uh, Congress shall pass no law establishing any particular religion, and it shall pass no law limiting the free exercise thereof. So it's, it's uh, it, the Constitution of our country says the government cannot establish any given religion, and on the other hand, it can't stop people from practicing their religion. So one, those two things. That's not how it was back in the days of the Reformation. Back in the days of the Reformation, first of all, they're under kings and princes. It's not a democratic form of government. On the other hand, it was just assumed, because it was true, all of the rulers were Christian. Up until the Reformation, they were all Roman Catholic. <laughs> Once the Reformation hit, some of them became Lutheran, some of them became uh, Reformed or Calvinist, and a lot of them still were Catholic. But it was assumed that the government was always Christian, and just by the way history worked out, there was a lot of interference from the government in the church, and by the same token, there was a whole lot of attempts by people in the church to run the government. Heck, the Pope 
one of the big things that happened throughout the Middle Ages was big fights between kings and pope about who was really in charge of various aspects of life. Um, so when the Book of Concord was written, it assumes that you're dealing with Christian rulers, by and large. But by the same token, it's very aware of the fact that the state can, does, and has intruded unfairly into the matters of the church. And more what they're worried about in those days was that the church and uh, leaders like bishops and the pope and priests and so forth were guilty of intruding into the uh, realm of the state and trying to take more power for themselves than they had a right to. So that is to say, the confessions actually have a lot of thinking about this relationship between the church and the state. And so it's worth paying attention to because they've thought about it from a very biblical standpoint. Now, some of the things, that's what, in the handouts I've given you, we basically go through what the confessions lay out, some of the big basic teachings that they have and you can see there's about oh, nine or ten of those things. And I, in the back pages, I've inserted quotes from the confessions that uh, pertain to the things that we're about to talk about. So we're going to reference these parts of the confessions, and we'll be reading some of these parts to help talk about them. Now, as you'll see, a lot of these early ones especially very clearly just reflect what we've already talked about. After all, the confessions claim to be telling you what the Bible says about these matters. So it shouldn't be surprising that as we've been digging into what the Bible says about these matters, it'll sound a lot like what the confessions say. But again, as we get to these, some of these later ones, we'll see that the confessions dig a lot deeper and deploy it in very specific ways that may not have occurred to us, or certainly we haven't talked about thus far. All right, that's all by way of introduction. Let's dig in. Let's just see. Some of these we won't spend that much time on just because they very much rehearse what we've already talked about. But let's just work through these basic teachings of the confessions. That'll be under Roman numeral 2 here on the first page. For simplicity's sake, you might just want to tear the two sheets apart so you have one on one side and one on the other. The first four of these, or uh, five of these are the most important things that the confessions have to say, and they lay out pretty much what we've already said. First thing that the confessions teach, in the Augsburg Confession, Article um, 16, it teaches that secular authority has been instituted by God. That therefore, because it's been instituted by God, we Christians have an obligation to respect the authority. And not just respect it, but also freely participate in secular authority. That is, Christians can actually become presidents. They can serve as judges, as policemen, as soldiers, mail carriers, all kinds of things. Somebody want to just read on the second sheet here this part that says AC Article 16, AC is short for Augsburg Confession. Okay. Of civil affairs, they teach that lawful civil ordinances are good works of God, and that it is right for Christians to bear civil office, to sit as judges, to judge matters by the imperial and other existing laws, to award just punishments, to engage in just wars, to serve as soldiers, to make legal contracts, to hold property, to make oath when required by the magistrates, to marry a wife, to be given in marriage. They condemn the anti-Baptists to forbid these civil offices to Christians. They condemn also those who do not place evangelical perfection in the fear of God and in faith, 
but in forsaking civil offices, for the gospel teaches an eternal righteousness of the heart. Meanwhile, it does not destroy the state or the family, but very much requires that they be preserved as ordinances of God, and that charity be practiced in such ordinances. Therefore, Christians are necessarily bound to obey their own magistrates and laws, save only when commanded to sin, for they ought to obey God rather than men. So there's some interesting things laid out there. Some of it's pretty straightforward. That again, God is the one who's instituted secular authority, and therefore it's appropriate for secular authority to do all these things. Sit as judges, pass laws, judge according to those laws, uh, punish wrongdoers, engage in just wars. By the way, not engage on any war that, uh, that uh, seems like a good idea, but just wars, that is wars that you could legitimately justify as being helpful to preserving civil order, protecting your own citizenry. Uh, that we could get just war is a whole nother topic that would be worth diving into, but it's just, I was just want to highlight it here. It does not say secular authority can engage in any war at any time for any reason. It says in just wars. Soldiers, contracts, property, um, all of those things. Notice that it doesn't, though, just assert that secular authorities are allowed to do these things. Specifically, what is it, who does it say is, is right for them to also participate in doing all these things? Christians. It's not just, okay, God has set up secular authority. You Christians, you worry about your church, though. Um, God will use all these non-Christians to take care of the world like that. It goes a step further and says, Christians, you can, and it is even appropriate, good, right, and salutary for you to serve in public office, to exercise secular authority if it's entrusted to you, to serve as a soldier, to uh, judge, punish, and so on and so forth as a member of the secular authority. Now, one reason I make a big deal of that is there are a fair number of Christians who disagree with that very firmly. One obvious group are the Amish. Mennonites are another group. There's that little line there where it says, they, that is the Lutheran churches, condemn the Anabaptists, because the Anabaptists forbid Christians to participate in these things. Um, Anabaptist is a big blanket term for a whole bunch of different kinds of Christians, but under that umbrella term, we can talk about Mennonites, Amish, those kinds of people. Basically, they are saying, if Christians assert that because you are Christian, you cannot um, engage in secular authority, that you cannot serve as soldiers, you cannot serve as police, you cannot... Um, serve as governors on the argument that doing so requires you to, say, punish wrongdoers. And doesn't Christ, after all, say, um, endure evil if somebody does evil to you? Therefore, being a government is incompatible with being a Christian. Therefore, Christians cannot do any of these things. That's the argument those kinds of Christians make. The Lutherans are very much saying that is against God's actual word. For while it's true, the Lutheran position is, that Christians for themselves, as Christians and believers of Christ, should not avenge themselves, should not perpetrate violence on anybody, should not take it into their own hands to punish evildoers, but rather suffer evil. By the same token, God has also ordained and called people to this secular authority and promoting civil order. 
And if a Christian is called into that order, a Christian is not violating their conscience because they are not acting purely as a Christian. They are acting as somebody called by God to act as God's representative in doing these kinds of things. Does that make sense? Therefore, Christians are allowed to, and in some cases even should, become part of the secular order, serve in the secular authority, and exercise the secular authority. Any questions about that? Does that make sense? No questions about that, but I, I know I wasn't in here. Where does this come from, this article? Oh, this is uh, the Augsburg Confession, which is part of the Book of Concord. Um, this is the confession that um, the in 1530... The uh, princes presented to the uh, Emperor Charles V, who was calling this big group together to try to deal with the reformers once and for all. He wanted them to basically come forward and say, are you Catholic or are you not? And they presented the Augsburg Confession as a statement of here's what we believe. And the Augsburg Confession was their way of saying, we actually do believe what the true Catholic Christian religion teaches we just object to things where the where current Catholic practice and teachings have gone away from the ancient teaching of both the church and the scripture. And uh, the, uh, again, Augsburg Confession is something that the Lutherans have agreed on, and certainly our church body has agreed on, is a correct exposition of the scriptures. That is to say, it's a correct interpretation and therefore, we use it as an authority in our churches. Does that make sense? Um, so that's where this is coming from. It's the Augsburg Confession. When you see the AC, that's kind of my little uh, shorter way of writing that. Now, there's a second thing they also say. On their, this, they condemn those who do not place evangelical perfection. Well, what's that supposed to mean? They're talking about the practice of monasticism. Basically, the Catholics at the time, there were a large number of Catholics who were basically asserting that, yes, it's true, there's a lot of people who have to live out in the world, get married, have kids, earn a living, so on and so forth. And if you have to do it, I guess you have to do it. But if you really want to be a good Christian, if you want to be perfect, you have to become a monk, forsake all of those ordinary tasks of life, forsake marriage, forsake kids, forsake property, forsake having marriage, like a monk does. And that's how you become a really good Christian. That's how you become perfect, in, so to speak. The confession, the Augsburg Confession here is asserting that actually is a denial of scripture because what Christ, what the gospel, what the law all teach are that Christians ought to serve their neighbors by obeying the actual laws of God, right? And what does God's laws actually command? Husbands love their wives, which implies, you know, have husbands and wives normally. Children, honor your parents. Parents, raise your kids in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, which kind of implies having kids is actually the God-pleasing thing to do. Um, and all of these other things. If God institutes secular authority... It's kind of wrong, actually, to treat secular authority as inherently sinful, wrong, and bad. So the uh, objection here of the Lutherans is saying, let's not invent good works for ourselves to do that God has not commanded, as though that's supposed to make us pleasing in God's sight. Making up stuff isn't going to make you better in God's sight. Doing what God actually commands is what's going to please God. And what does God command? Well, all of these civil ordinances, what we call in the Lutheran circles, vocations that you have. Husband, father, um, policeman, teacher, secretary, trucker, 
all of these ways are ways of actually serving God. And it's better to do those than to run away from the world and hide in a monastery and uh, pretend that you're serving God better by ignoring the things God has actually commanded. Make sense? So there's another instance. It's not just that Christians can participate in the secular order, but that they should and they must because they are Christian. Because as Christians, we recognize all of these are good gifts of God. We want to not only make use of them, but participate in them and do it well out of, as it says, charity or love. That's a pretty strong claim, but it's a good thing to be reminded of. So there's big teaching number one. Big teaching number two. Spiritual authority is also Again, spiritual authority as opposed to secular authority. Spiritual authority is also instituted by God, and Christians must also respect that. Same kind of deal. Now, uh, we'll go into the uh, part about this. I have this uh, part from um, of ecclesiastical power listed after several of these teachings, because that section of this whole Augsburg Confession deals with all of these issues at the same time. So we'll wait to dive into reading it until we get through the, until I just lay out what these basic teachings are, okay? Then we'll read and we'll circle back to what it's saying about each of these. But by the same token, even though the spiritual and the secular power are both instituted by God, nevertheless, they are charged with very different things. The secular authority is charged with defending, promoting, and enforcing civil order, like we talked about a couple lessons ago. Second table of the law stuff. Keep people from killing each other, ensure and to encourage them to act relatively decently towards each other, right? Uh, the spiritual authority, on the other hand, is charged specifically with preaching the word of God. Um, as we'll see, the way the uh, confession actually puts it is also forgiving and retaining sins. That is to say, preaching forgiveness to those who repent, withholding forgiveness and excluding those who do not repent, um, and administering the sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper. On that note, because there's two of them, the fifth big point that the confessions teach, the spiritual and secular authority should never be confused. That is, they shouldn't be mixed together. Uh, the spiritual authority should not intrude on the role of the secular authority, and by the same token, the secular authority should not intrude on the role of the spiritual authority. Different purposes, different goals, different means. So they should not try to take the other's tasks or jobs on themselves. It's a very clear principle, a very important one. As we'll see, and as you can probably already imagine, in certain circumstances, it gets a little muddy how you keep those things straight, just because there are sometimes places where the concerns of both have some overlap, but that's the basic rule of thumb, the basic teaching. They are very different and they should not be mixed. Let's just read about what the confessions themselves say about this. Uh, this is a little bit of a longer read here, but one of you want to read basically from this part, our teachers, over to the very top of the next page where it ends with Commonwealth. Our teachers for the comforting of men's consciences were constrained to show the differences between the power of the church and the power of the sword, and taught that both of them, because of God's commandment, are to be held in reverence and honor as the chief blessings of God on earth. But, the, but this is their opinion, that the power of the keys, or the power of the bishops, according to the gospel, is a power of command, or commandment of God, 
to preach the gospel, to remit and retain sins, and to administer sacraments. This power is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel or, and administering the sacraments according to their calling, either to make mm -hmm. or to many or to individuals. For thereby are granted not bodily, but eternal things as eternal righteousness, the holy gospel, eternal life. These things cannot come by the ministry of the word and the sacraments. Therefore, since the power of the church grants eternal things and is exercised only by the ministry of the word, it does not interfere with civil government. No more than the art of singing interferes with civil government. For civil government deals with other things than does the gospel. The civil rulers defend not their minds, but bodies and bodily things against manifest injuries and restrain men with the sword and bodily punishments in order to preserve civil justice and peace. Therefore, the power of the church and the civil power must not be confounded. The power of the church has its own commission to teach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. Let it not break into the office of another. <clears throat> Let it not transfer the kingdoms of this world. Let it not abrogate the laws of civil rulers. Let it not abolish law or obedience. Let it not interfere with judgments concerning civil ordinances or contracts. Let it not prescribe laws to civil rulers concerning the form of the commonwealth. So first of all, uh, you can see pretty straightforwardly how all of these things we just talked about, these uh, four basic teachings are there. That first of all, both spiritual authority and secular authority are instituted by God. And that Christians, therefore, are to respect and submit to both, right? In fact, it calls both of them, in this remarkable little phrase, the chief blessings of God here on earth. Secular authority as a chief blessing of God on earth. Spiritual authority as a chief blessing of God on earth. Why would it call it the chief blessings? I mean, we could probably say pretty clearly why we would say the spiritual authority, which is the word, the sacraments, forgiveness, is a chief blessing, right? Because after all, that's the blessing, like it just spells out, of eternal things. You can't get better than that, right? No matter what else is going on in life, there is nothing worth comparing to those kinds of blessings. That's pretty self-evident for Christians. But the secular authority as one of the chief blessings of God on earth? How many of you wake up every morning and thinking, Ah, government, thank you, dear Father in heaven. What a great, the highest of blessings you have bestowed. But it is supposed to keep peace, and that is a blessing. It is a blessing. Um, and that's precisely it. It protects all the other gifts of God. Again, whether you love it or hate it, imagine it didn't exist. <laughs> How long do you think you would enjoy any of your other blessings in this life? How long do you honestly think you would be able to enjoy uh, the blessings of the love of your spouse if there was literally no law and order whatsoever? People could take your property, constantly cause your spouse to fight. Your spouse had felt there was no obligation and no consequence to doing uh, betraying you or anything like that. If it was just every person for themselves all the time, what gift could hardly anyone enjoy for very long? You could try it, 
<laughs> I guess it's almost never been tried, so it's hard to say for sure. But I think we know about how it works even when the civil government is there keeping things in check, how hard it is to maintain these blessings. To guess that you would have almost none of them for very long at all. Therefore, civil government is one of the chief blessings of God on earth because it's the blessing that allows us even the possibility of enjoying all these other blessings. Not because it gives them, but because it protects them and keeps us from having them taken from us by all kinds of different ways. So yes, when you wake up, one of the very first things you want to do is thank God for our civil governments, even if we consider it a relatively bad one or, for that matter, a perfectly good one. Thank God for it, because God knows what he's doing, even when the civil leaders themselves don't entirely. Well, he said it had never been tried before, but I think we've got some of our major cities that are giving it a try. Well, they're certainly trying, uh, shall we say, smaller degrees of civil order. And uh, it it's, does seem, in, and this is not the first time this has been, those kinds of things have been tried. Um... There have been lots of times where this has been tried, where there have been people who did a small-scale rebellion, started to try to set up their own perfect state where, where there was pure an where the idea was anarchy. Let every person do what they want. Needless to say, it all ended in disaster, and not just because the civil governments outside decided, well, we're not going to let them do this forever. Certainly, that didn't help their cause either. But internally, they almost always were collapsing very quickly and having all kinds of terrible, terrible things happen. Because when you try to get rid of the blessings of God, you end up with nothing but curses. Anyway, big statement from them. Not hard to see why when we really sit down and think about what it would be like without that blessing. So again, both of them given by God and both of them should be respected. Again, it says very clearly that the two have very different functions and should be clearly separated. It Obviously, the heavy side of this goes on the church should not, must not, shall not intrude on the secular authority. And it lists a whole bunch of different things like this. It says it shouldn't try to set up kings or transfer kingdoms. That's a shot at the Pope who claimed the authority to crown or decrown kings. But uh, applicable, too, to the idea that the church as the church probably ought not take it into its own authority or think that it's within its scope to try to say, we're going to make sure that this kind of form of government is what's going to be in place and not that kind of form of government. In fact, it even says directly as the last thing, it shouldn't prescribe laws to civil rulers concerning the form of the commonwealth. There are a lot of Christians who have been very confused about that, who think that it is their Christian duty to preserve a certain form of government and that civil leaders are obligated to the church and to God to have a certain form of civil government. Heck, we, there are so many Christians who are convinced that if you get rid of um, American or democratic capitalism in its current form, you cannot have Christianity anymore, or that it is the only God-pleasing form of government. Well, I hate to say it, folks, but even China, communist China, came to authority by whose dispensation? God's. It's not to say that there is no reason to prefer one form of government over another. It's to say the church's business is not to try to compel the government to run the secular order in any specific way over against another way, so long as it's not overtly denying and opposing the obvious laws of God about how people are supposed to relate to each other. Does that make sense? And even then, uh, the, sec the church in that role where it's speaking against, say, the... the uh, government's 
neglecting its own duties and acting against its own divinely given prerogatives, the church isn't there to try to force and compel new laws on the state. It speaks with the power of the word to try to bring the government to recognize who it answers to and what its proper duties are. Boy, these confessions, I tell you, it's like they were written for us. If the government were all Christians, their way of doing things would be totally different. It was. Um, but, by the, and that's worth pointing out, they recognized that they were dealing very much with the assumption that their rulers over them would also be Christian. And we're going to get into some of the messiness that comes out of that in just a little bit. But they also weren't aware that that wasn't the case throughout the world. They, they knew, in fact, one of the existential threats to Europe at the time that was heavily on the mind of every prince, every king, and almost every public intellectual, it pops up in Luther a lot, it pops up in every reformer a lot, was that the Turks were very heavily pushing against Europe. They had already conquered the ancient thousand-year-old Christian Byzantine Empire, which was basically the Roman Empire, just only a hundred years before the Reformation. And they were very gung-ho about trying to invade Europe take over and establish Islam as the rule. And they were highly successful at it. They were very much on the borders of Germany at the time. They knew there were Christians existing under non-Christian, even anti-Christian governments. And uh, one line Luther famously wrote is, I would rather have a smart Turk rule over me, a smart Muslim, than a stupid Christian. <laughs> How could he say that? Well, because he had in mind this same idea. Even if they are pagan, Muslim, anti-Christian, the role does not change. They are still the arbiters, the protectors, the promoters of the civil order as given in the second table of the law. And by the way, sometimes Muslims can do that even better than Christians. <laughs> Heck, we say that our own government is superior to a lot of other governments, right, around the world. Let's even assert I personally believe that it is. <laughs> is our government Christian? No. It formally by design. It is not particularly, peculiarly Christian. Like that's the First Amendment. It can't establish any particular religion. And yet we can still defend it as saying it's still much better than, say, the Russian form of government, the Chinese form of government, because we'd like to think that it does a relatively better job of maintaining justice, order, promoting good, punishing evil, right? You don't need a Christian to enforce the second table of the law like we were talking about before. This is a universal law that God has hardwired into creation. Everybody is in some sense, even as sinners, dimly aware of it, even if they're corrupted against it and very often ignore it. And most every civil ruler recognizes at some point you have to do this minimally if you're going to have a society to govern. <laughs> And by the way, Christians in Turkey were allowed religious freedom. They had to pay special taxes. They were second-class citizens, but they were allowed to worship at the time. And Orthodox Christianity continued. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity continued long after, hundreds of years after, the Byzantine Empire fell to the Turkish Ottomans. Point being, while uh, it's uh, the reason I say this is, yes, the Lutherans, the Confessors, the Reformers, the Catholics, all of them were assuming our rulers are Christian, and that will come into play in a little bit. This it doesn't violate the fundamental principle they're saying here, or anything that they've just said here. Nevertheless, the secular government, even the Muslim government of the Turks, should not impose itself on the government of the spiritual authority. 
And strangely enough, at least sometimes, of course, they did, but sometimes they didn't. And Christians were free to exercise their spiritual authority under the Muslim government. But they're still called and, sometimes, and are able to do all those things that even our Christian princes are doing. Make sense? Doesn't change the content of the confession at all, even if your rulers are different people. Because the principle is still true. And I, I suspect a lot of, a lot of uh, certain kinds of evangelicals in America get uncomfortable with this because most evangelicals in America actually are not Lutheran. <laughs> they uh, operate from a more reformed perspective, which does very much believe that the government as an institute of God should also be a Christian government. And that the ideal form of government is the one that imposes both first and second tables of the law. And that all, and in fact, Zwingli, the leader of the Swiss Reformation, who, by the way, led a revolt against the uh, secular government, actively taught, if the secular government isn't Christian, you have the right to overthrow it. Very different <laughs> than, say, the Lutheran confession. And by the way, very different than the biblical teaching by which Paul and Peter, as we have said, what did they assert about the secular pagan Roman governors? Submit to them, because they're God's servants who promote good, punish evil. Sounds a lot more like what Luther says than what Zwingli says. Or not Luther, I should say, these are the Lutheran confessions. Luther did not write this. All right, in our heads, on paper, that's a very clear, good distinction to make. Secular power over here, spiritual power over here. Now, right away, the uh, authors of the confessions are also not naive. Um, and in fact, they are also very aware, painfully aware, that their rulers are Christian. And so they even start thinking through this in the confessions themselves about some of the consequences that flow out of this. Because, first of all, uh, before we get into this, let's, let's just think about your average Joe Christian here. Let's say he got uh, elected to be your local sheriff. He's also a member at your local LCMS church. Now, is this person able to say... Okay, I'm going to split myself into two people. By day, I'll be sheriff, secular order enforcer. By night, I will be faithful LCMS Lutheran. Is that even possible? No. As much as the two powers and authorities are separate orders of God with separate purposes, the people in them are always at the same time citizens of both kingdoms. They are under both authorities, participants in both authorities. And therefore, if nothing else, they overlap on the person themselves. And the person still has all of the obligations, duties, rights, and benefits of being a member of an LCMS congregation, and all of the rights, duties, benefits, and obligations of being a sheriff of their county at the same time. So, a very interesting teaching that comes out of this, which may almost sound like it contradicts what will what we said before, so we're going to spend a little time on it, is uh, number six here on your sheets. A Christian who holds a position of secular authority maintains his or her duties to both authorities simultaneously. As holder of the secular authority, he or she will still seek to uphold civil order, or the second table of the law. But as a Christian, he or she at the same time will seek to oppose false teaching and promote true teaching of the gospel. Somebody want to read um, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which is, uh, by the way, you can imagine 
the Catholic emperor, Charles V, when he got this confession, the Augsburg Confession from the people, he didn't say, oh, well, great, I agree, you guys are all good Catholics, uh, sure, we'll just change all of these things that you are objecting to. That's not how it happened. He got a team of Catholic theologians together who issued this rebuttal document to the Augsburg Confession um, saying, this is why you guys are, this confession doesn't line up with our Catholic teaching and this is why you're heretics and you need to be either repent or be burned at the stake. In response to this, the uh, Lutheran theologians wrote the apology of the Augsburg Confession. Apology, by the way, does not only mean I'm sorry. That's how we use it most of the time today. Uh, it also means, and back then it mainly meant, a defense. To give an apology was not to say, you were right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. It was to say, actually I'm right, and here's why. And that's what the apology to the Augsburg Confession is. It says, I hear what you're saying, but here's why you're wrong and completely misunderstanding the scripture, Catholic theologians. Here's our defense of what we said. So that's what the Apology of the Augsburg Confession is. Somebody want to read this part here. It starts with, therefore, ends with preachers. Therefore, most excellent Emperor Charles, for the sake of the glory of Christ, which we have no doubt that you desire to praise and magnify, we beseech you not to assent to the violent counsels of our adversaries, but to seek other honorable ways of so establishing harmony that godly consciences are not burdened that no cruelty is exercised against innocent men, as we have hitherto seen, and that sound doctrine is not suppressed in the church. To God, most of all, you owe the duty, as far as possible to man, to maintain sound doctrine and hand it down to posterity, and to defend those who teach what is right. For God demands this when he honors kings with his own name, and calls them God, saying, Psalm 82, 6. I have said ye are gods, namely that they should attend to the preservation and propagation of divine things, i.e. the gospel of Christ on the earth, and as the vicars of God, should defend the life and safety of the innocent, true Christian teachers and preachers. All right, and somebody else want to read that little bit about the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. That's another document in the Book of Concord, written by a guy named Philip Melanchthon, objecting to the claims of the Roman Catholic Church that the Pope was the vicar of Christ on earth, the one who was the sole head of both the church and of the world, that the Pope had all spiritual authority and all secular authority, which was a claim a lot of the Catholic theologians were pushing. So this is a document saying, this is why that idea about the Pope's power is completely wrong. Um, but here's what they, somebody want to read this little paragraph taken from it. But especially the chief members of the church, kings and princes, ought to guard the interests of the church and to see to it that errors be removed and consciences be healed, rightly instructed, as God expressly exhorts Kings in Psalms 2 verse 10. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. For it should be the first care of kings and great lords to advance the glory. Therefore it would be very shameful for them to lend their influence and power to confirm idolatry and infinite other crimes and to slaughter saints. All right. A lot of stuff in there. They're not directly talking about like the topic of 
the separate the respective roles of secular authority and spiritual authority. Rather, they're talking about they're appealing to um, emperors and talking about kings in the appeal of trying to deal with some problems that are in the church. And as they do that, they kind of employ this teaching. So we get to see how it functions in their thinking on the ground. And they say some remarkable things. First of all, uh, notice uh, in that first part, uh, the apology there in that whole section on the invocation of the saints, they're appealing to the emperor to defend them against their adversaries. That is the Roman Catholics who are trying to uh, get the king to punish and censure and remove the uh, Lutherans and their confession from the area. And so what they say is they appeal to the king and saying, emperor, as emperor, you should take it on yourself to not listen to them, but instead see to it that you are promoting what is true, what is right, what is in accord with sound doctrine, and by the same token, curbing any violence against us. Now, there's two very big things here that'll be, that's a little clearer from the... On the one hand, there's the appeal to uh, curb violence, O oh, emperor, and on the other hand, to promote truth as a Christian <laughs> emperor. It sounds, if you're just reading this very quickly, like they're, like they're forgetting about everything they said about separation of the two kinds of authorities, that the two should not intrude on the office of the other, and so on and so forth. But when you look at it, what it's saying very carefully is, especially when you see it in that treatise on the power and the primacy of the Pope, notice how they address the kings and the princes, that very first line. What do they call those kings and princes? But especially the what? Chief members of the church. So they're speaking specifically about kings and princes who are Christian. And talking about them as chief members of the church, not in the sense that they actually have more power, more authority in the church, but as people who have a special dignity by virtue of the fact that they have more power in the world to live in their vocations. Uh, but as members of the church, they are obligated to promote truth and to oppose lies, heresy, and so forth. So within their own, the idea here that they're appealing to is the idea that if the king is a Christian, then as a Christian, not as a king, as a Christian, just like every other Christian has this same duty, they are to seek to promote the truth of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, and to oppose and restrain the hearing of what is not the gospel. After all, if you are a tax collector, if you are a farmer, or if you are a trucker, what is your duty as a Christian? As a Christian, your duty is to promote the preaching of the gospel, promote sound teaching, to oppose bad teaching, right? That's a duty on every member of the church. That's a big part of being a Christian, right? Does that stop the second you get in your truck and become a trucker for a company? No, you're still a Christian carrying out a vocation. That's the whole doctrine of vocation again. We go out into the world as Christians to serve and love our neighbors in all of these various callings. Even if it's trucking, I get in, I serve the world by hauling goods so that other people can enjoy these blessings God gives. Great work of God's creation, great calling, great way to serve God and others. But I do it wearing my faith on my sleeve, so to speak. I don't do it as I'm wearing my secular non-Christian job hat. I do it as everything I do, I do to the praise, glory, and honor of God. With the assumption that by doing it, I am praising God. And as I carry it out as though I am praising, honoring God, right? Now, does that mean that the uh, non-Christian is a less capable trucker? 
No. As far as the Christian as being the Christian trucker, their Christianity doesn't have that much to do, per se, with how good or bad at trucking they are. It's just to say that I don't stop being a Christian once I get into the truck. I carry my faith with me and I carry out my duties as though it is an act of love and praise of God and service to others. Which is different than the non-Christian trucker, but may not result in me trucking any better or worse. But I still do it that way because I'm a Christian. And my church, my pastor, is right to preach sermons to me as though God himself expects me as a trucker to act like as I truck, I'm serving God and others, right? The same is also true no matter what earthly vocation you have, whether that is garbage person, farmer, or sheriff. So that as the sheriff goes out, who is a Christian, he goes out wanting to praise, honor, glorify God and recognizing his service as a praise, honor, and glory of God. That doesn't necessarily mean he will be better or worse as a sheriff, and it does not change his fundamental duty as a sheriff. Any more than being a Christian changes the fundamental duty of the trucker. Fundamental duty of the trucker is deliver the goods, right? Fundamental duty of the sheriff is enforce the laws. But she will definitely be doing it as a Christian, wearing her faith on, or his faith on the sleeve. Now, if this is not just the sheriff who enforces the law, but let's say the legislator up in Congress, is that still a Christian? Yes. Fundamentally, the duty of the legislator is the duty of all secular authorities. Promote good order. Doesn't change one bit by the fact that they're a Christian. Their still fundamental duty is that. But also, as a Christian, they will necessarily want to also promote truth, if by no other means than insisting that the church remain free to promote its truth. Does that make sense? But it seems like it's getting harder and harder for these Christians who all hold any kind of office, especially like in the province and legislature. It's hard for them to to be both at the same time because there are people that want them only to be Christian for an hour on Sundays. Right. And, and there's no doubt. There, it's, it's worth saying this is not an easy demand on people. It's probably especially hard on Christian rulers, precisely because on the one hand, uh, the Christian ruler might be tempted to forsake the second table of the law and become basically the uh, arbiter of the gospel, or try be tempted to take on the office of the ministry, so to speak, and say, now I'm going to force everybody to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to force legally everybody to take the sacraments, even if it goes against the teaching of the gospel, which says that people should only partake of these things when they believe and only the word is going to bring them to faith. Nevertheless, I have the power. I'm going to make it happen. It's easy for them to be tempted in that direction and confuse what their purposes are. And not just wear the faith on the sleeve, so to speak, but try to actually enforce their faith on everybody else, even on non-believers. The plea here, by the way, in the confessions is not force these Catholics to be Lutherans. The Catholics, by the way, were, for, were saying, Emperor, force these Lutherans to recant or expel them, punish them, destroy them. And by the way, you want to talk about people who had it hard to be Christian rulers. The people who presented the Augsburg Confession were, in fact, all Christian princes. And they very famously all knelt before the emperor and said, you want, if you're not happy with us, go ahead and chop off our heads right here. We're still going to be holding to this confession. Now, obviously, for all kinds of power re struggle reasons, he couldn't do that. <laughs> and he, they knew he wouldn't do that. 
But the point is, it didn't take long before the emperor actually declared war on all these princes to try to snuff them out. Hard to keep that faith going. But point A, sorry, I'm circling back to what they were trying, what their plea was. It wasn't let's wipe out the Catholics, prince. Instead, don't wipe us out, wipe them out. It was, first of all, as a Christian, recognize that your your loyalties should be to the truth rather than to anything else. But as a secular ruler, you should also be concerned to curb the violence. So as a matter of promoting good order, defend us from their attacks. And as a Christian, you should even um, work to try to push legislation that at the very least forbids idolatry. Now that goes a lot stronger than we would feel comfortable with as Americans saying. I'll acknowledge that full well. That's just kind of what they say here in these things. That uh, as a Christian, a Christian will, in certain sense, at the very least, seek to discourage idolatry. But only as a Christian, not per se as a ruler. It's as a Christian exercising their rule as authority. It's not something fundamental to the secular authority itself. And you might say, well, that's kind of splitting hairs, isn't it? Because it's still the secular authority doing that. Well, it's, it's an important hair split, because on the one hand, we're not asserting the government as such has a responsibility to do this. We're saying um, when a Christian is a Christian, they're still obligated to act as a Christian in their vocations, and so they'll want to pursue the things that Christians want to pursue. Make sense? I know it's, it is confusing, and it's not all the way sorted out in the confessions. It's just getting at the principle here that when a person is a Christian who serves in these things, they don't magically stop being one or the other on the one hand, and they don't, by the other hand, simply confuse the others all the way through. Go ahead. Well, I can see as, as a Christian, you know, you, you might have some difficulty of taking your hat off as a missionary when you're, when you're in a secular role. Mm -hmm. But let's say I'm a Muslim. I'm a devout Muslim, right? And I believe the Quran. Mm -hmm. I believe that Christians basically should be killed. Am I going to have a little difficulty, you know, ruling over here, promoting good and order, when in my heart I know that these disbelievers don't deserve to live anyway? Well, first of all, that depends very much on the kind of Muslim you happen to be. Let's let's acknowledge, like in Christianity. <laughs> Islam has a huge range of different groups. We call them denominations in Christianity. I guess we could say, call it that kind of thing in Islam, although they wouldn't love that term, I'm sure. Bakhtar, uh, just historical matter of fact, the rulers who happened to be in charge of the Ottoman Turks tended to be not quite so, these Christians are all enemies of Allah, they need to die. Uh, there have been Muslim regimes like that. Obviously, uh, ISIS as a very recent example where the response was, let's cut off their heads. Again, we would not, the, if, if we were holding to this in that kind of perspective, we would say the secular authority is by far and away exceeding its authority. It would be horribly unjust for a Christian who earnestly believes that all non-believers are uh, faulty going to hell and all of that to start persecuting them overtly by physically punishing them, hurting them, imprisoning them, and so forth. For the one thing, the internal logic of Christian belief doesn't believe that's an effective or appropriate means to try to convert people or to deal with unbelievers. Granted, that's not necessarily how Islam internally feels about unbelievers. But whether, again, the, is, the ruler happens to be a Muslim who believes firmly that way or not, 
the principle still applies. We submit to the secular authorities where they are acting according to their dictates of enforcing the secular order. And again, there is that very uh, big statements in here. Uh, I don't remember exactly which line it was at this moment, but where it says, oh, in uh, civil affairs, save only when commanded to sin, for then they ought to obey God rather than men. The idea being there, we are uh, free from obeying the dictates of the government when they start overtly asking us to do things contrary to the law of God in either table, right? Um, if the Muslim is coming at us and insisting that we die for our faith, Christians are free to insist you guys are exceeding your authority. And in a certain sense, it might even be justifiable, not as a matter of uh, defending the Christian faith, but as uh, policing the secular authority within its own realm of, of having an organized resistance to them. Does that make sense? And I want to clarify that point really quickly, what I mean, then I'll have to stop here. Um, I don't mean... Because the Christian faith is under threat, the only thing we can do is take up arms and fight against the authorities. That is not what we're saying here. In fact, as the Christian faith, as far as our defense of the Christian church goes, we stick with the word of God and we will let them cut off our heads if that's what it takes. It's not for us to try to enforce our existence with the sword. God can take care of his church. The gospel will make room necessary for the church to exist. What I'm saying here is that as a matter of the secular authority exceeding its own just boundaries, then as citizens of the secular order, you might organize resistance to it to say, we want the secular order to, be, as secular citizens, we want the secular order to be in its proper sphere. And so we're going to use the means of the secular order that we are citizens of, as we are called to do almost, to get them back in bounds. Does that make sense? Now again, that same limit applies also to the Christian ruler. If the Christian ruler starts saying, as a Christian, I'm going to start persecuting all these other groups, by all means, they need to be brought back by their church to repent. Because that is not how Christians deal with unbelievers. And it's probably flirting with the line of overstepping the bounds of the secular authority that they've been entrusted with. Again, it gets a little messy and it's not entirely clearly sorted out to perfection in the way the confessions talk. Yes, the, the Christian uh, ruler is to act as a Christian and care about promoting Christian things, but as a ruler, they're primarily concerned with civil order. And so they will put down even Christian persecutions of non-Christian groups if it's disturbing the civil order. So if, say, Church of the Cross, good old LCMS church decides, oh, that Jewish synagogue down the street, they don't believe in Jesus, we've tried to convert them, they won't, we're going to go, I don't know, graffiti their synagogue. The Christian ruler, as a Christian and as a ruler, because Christians know that is not in keeping with the Christian faith, and as a secular ruler who is in, concerned about promoting order, as both, that person is well justified to go in there and put a stop to it. As a secular authority, to punish them. As a member of the Christian church, to call them to repent. Does that make sense? It's easy in thought experiments to talk about all this, of course. But uh, when you're on the ground as the person living in them, as you know, it's not always easy to keep those distinctions neat and clear. But it's precisely why it's important to keep the distinctions as much as we can so that we don't get confused about these things, especially when we're in these positions of power, and start trying to enforce some faulty idea of the kingdom of God on the one hand, or letting false ideas about the scope of the secular authority 
run our show because we think, well, we're just secular rulers, so whatever the secular authority happens to be doing must be okay. This distinction is one of the most helpful, um, not just the most true, it is true, it's just what the Bible teaches, but it's also the most helpful distinction for responsible exercise of your civil office if you happen to be a Christian charged with the secular authority. It is one of the most helpful things for a secular citizen to start dealing with your secular authorities and recognizing the scope of their authority, the limits of their authority, and your appropriate response to them. And helping yourself recognize what in your response to them is a matter of this concerns the Christian faith, or what is a matter of this concerns the secular order. It's easy to say, for instance, I don't like what the government is doing, therefore it's against God's will, therefore as a Christian I have to oppose them. You keep this distinction in mind about what God has given Christians to do, what he has charged, then it's a lot harder to make that case in most cases. Not every, but in most cases. You can say, better now, I'm realizing as a citizen of the secular order, not as a Christian, because they are free to do these things and, not, and are not impinging on my rights or asking me to sin or any of this stuff. But I may believe that they're doing imprudent things over here. And so as a citizen, respond and not make this a matter of they're on the side of hell, I'm on the side of heaven, by virtue of this political position being on the side of heaven. This distinction helps us keep it straight. Make sense? Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.